Good evening. Good to see you guys here tonight. We're going to begin the book of First Samuel. And as we're going through it, um, Michael and I are going to be taking turns, different chapters. When I get tired, I'll tag, you're in. And when he gets tired, which will be often because he has a new baby, uh, then I'll come in. And I'm going to harass him a lot. When he says, yeah, i got the babies keeping him up, I go, how many do you have? One? Yeah. We started with two. One's nothing. Can't even hardly call that having a kid. <laughs> I submit to them. Anyway, so we'll be taking turns going through that. Uh, looking forward to this. First Samuel is an incredible book. A while back, Michael took us through the book of Judges, and there's this period of time in the history of Israel where God has called out this man, Abraham, and is establishing through Abraham an understanding, a recognition of who God really is. God has revealed himself to this man, and from this man is going to carry the mantle, so to speak, of who this God is. And through Moses came these laws and instruction for these people how they should live. And they were led by Moses through, out of Egypt, through the wilderness to the edge of the land of promise that God had given to them. Joshua then takes them across into the land of promise as they step through the Jordan and into this land. They're battling and they're accomplishing what they need to to set themselves up. And as they start establishing themselves, we see in Book of Judges that there are these judges. And when we think of judges, you think of the gavel and the black you know, robe, but it's not really the case with them. They were more of military uh, judges. They were kind of policing and establishing and conquering the enemy to try and keep this land of promise that God had given them. And so the people are kind of ruling themselves. There's this theocracy that's taking place, an understanding of what God requires. There's a temple of worship, how they are supposed to worship, how they are supposed to live, because God has given them these laws. There are these judges who are fighting off the enemy at different times to keep them in their land of promise. And now we're coming into Samuel, And Samuel is the last of the judges, but he's not really a military judge. He's more of a spiritual judge, just like these other judges fought to keep them in their land and fought off the enemy and the different things. Samuel is fighting to keep them on track, to keep them connected to God. Samuel is is fighting also to try and establish these people in their not only relationship with God, but also to develop kind of this new direction where they're going to move from judges to now having a king. And Samuel is also taking on the role of a prophet. And between Moses and King David... Samuel is probably the most important figure or the most recognized figure in this period of time. 
So through all these judges that we've had, some of them stood out more than others. There was Samson. He's kind of a different judge. There are all these other people that we've gone through. But Samuel really is going to be one who carries the people and hands the baton now into this establishing of a kingdom, which really isn't what God wanted. And Samuel is going to declare this as we get into the book deeper. It's like, why do you guys want this? Don't you know a king is going to lord over you, he's going to put requirements on you? Aren't you happy enough with God being over you? Can't you rule yourselves? And the answer was no. And so here's a historical book. Originally, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel was actually originally called 1 and 2 of Kingdoms. And then 1 and 2 Kings was called 3 and 4 of Kingdoms. They later on changed the names just for our sake. We don't know who wrote the book of Samuel. A lot of people say, well, Samuel wrote it. But he dies at the end of the first book, so he can't keep writing it unless he's a ghostwriter of the worst kind. you know. So we know that he didn't write the whole thing, but we believe that his writings are a part of these things as there are actually passages in 1 Samuel 10. It says that Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship, and he wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. And so we know that he was writing some of these historical accounts that we believe were taken and are now a part of this book. And as Samuel is one of these great figures, we're going to see how he emerges on the scene. Because Samuel is one of many who were of extraordinary birth. There are a handful of these people throughout Scripture that that just supernaturally, miraculously, something takes place. Moses, we know that he was born and was placed in a basket of reeds and put into the Nile River and then was recovered by Pharaoh's daughter and then raised even by his mom still. And there was that whole event where he was kind of protected by God and brought into this extraordinary place. Samson, one of the judges, an angel appeared to his mother and she was praying because she was barren. The angel said, you're going to have a son. He's going to be great and mighty. And he was in some ways and he wasn't in others. Uh, Isaac was born for Abraham in his old age. Uh, Samuel, we're going to see here again a promise of God's blessing to a woman who prays. John the Baptist also was born by Elizabeth who was barren. Zechariah had the vision in the the temple where God appeared to him. Of course, Jesus uh, miraculously of a virgin. And so Samuel is one of these who were born in a supernatural, extraordinary way. It doesn't mean that if you're not born in an extraordinary way, you're not special. It's just one of those things that does happen. There are a lot of great uh, figures in Scripture that were born normally like most of us. Um, Anyone here born extraordinary? You probably were. Yeah, I don't think you I wouldn't. I think you were too. And so let's go into this uh, chapter and take a look at how these things uh, took place and what they mean to us. Verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramatham 
a Zufite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Penaniah. Penaniah, or whatever her name was, had children, but Hannah had none. Years, year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Penanias, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penanah and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Such a man. It's all about me. As this starts out, we see there is this man, and he's a man who cares about the things of God as we read. He's going year after year to offer sacrifice to the Lord. And so he seems like a devout man, and he has two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. And so let's talk about that. Let's talk about having two wives. There are a number of counts in Scripture with people having more than one wife. None of them are ever good. There isn't a single case where we don't see conflict that takes place when there's two wives in the situation. We see David had problems with his many wives. Solomon's wives led his heart away from the Lord. We know about Abraham. Time and time again, there's problems. And so people will say, well, here it is. This guy has two wives, and we see that throughout Scripture there are men with multiple wives, so is it wrong to have two wives? Even in Deuteronomy, there is writings where the Lord gives instruction of how a person who has two wives needs to, to treat those wives. In Deuteronomy 21, it talks about how if a man has two wives and he loves one, which kind of is a sad thing, which means, what about the other one? But if he has a favorite wife, he can't make her children a priority, that whoever was born first, whether it's from the wife that he really cares about or the other one, whoever is born first has to be the one who inherits. And so there's these guidelines, and so people say, well, I guess God is okay with having more than one wife. And, you know, what I think we, we try to do is make things good and evil. You know, it's evil to have two wives. It's evil to get drunk. 
And sometimes we just need to stop and say, it's stupid. It's not a matter of good or evil. It's just stupid. I mean, the scripture tells us, don't get drunk. Well, is it a sin to drink? Well, it's not necessarily a sin to drink because we see instances where it seems like it's okay, but it's stupid to get drunk. It's stupid to have two wives. Well, is it a sin? I don't know, but it's stupid. Does it have to be a sin? Or can it just be stupid? Are there things that just aren't good? And this just isn't good. So are you allowed to have two wives? Not in the United States anymore. You can't. So it's illegal. Well, is it wrong? It's stupid. It never is going to turn out good. And I know there's those TV shows, you know, where in Utah and the different places from some Mormons that these people are different people and they have these wives and they're all there. Have you guys seen those shows? And they're all, what is it called? Sister Wars or something? Sister Wives. Sister wives yeah. <laughs> Just strange. And Sister Wars. That, <laughs> you know, you see these things and, yeah. And they put a camera there and they, oh, we love each other. Oh, come on. I mean, there's conflict in any family. And then you throw this in and, oh, my goodness. The prophet told the people, Samuel, that a king would multiply wives to himself. And God says, you shouldn't do that. Just like you shouldn't be drunk. And so some things are just stupid. And I think it's okay to just say that. And instead of trying to say, oh, it's evil, just say, no, it's just stupid, man. Don't do that. Because it's not going to be good. There's nothing in me that wants to have two wives. My wife's not even here, and I'm saying that just clearly. <laughs> so you can, you can tell her on my behalf. Jesus changes things, and he says that from the beginning it was not so. When the Pharisees came and they say, is it lawful to have a writing of divorce? Moses allowed it. And Jesus said, Moses allowed it because of the hardness of your heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. God set aside a woman for a man. And so we see Jesus bringing a clarity of that. No, it's supposed to be one woman, one man. That's the ideal. That's what God created. That was his intention. Man thought, I got a great idea. I'll get more than one wife for whatever reasons. And it's not a good idea. In fact, it's stupid. And I think it's okay to just say that and recognize that. And we see how that is not only stupid, but hurtful. As the story goes on in verse 3, year after year they went to worship the sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. And the word Lord Almighty, this is the first time it appears actually these words, it's the Lord all-powerful. First time it takes place here. And they go to sacrifice. And as they would do this, time and time again, we see that there's this conflict because 
Hannah had no children, and her husband's trying to make her feel loved and feel wanted, but the other wife has sons and daughters, and so she's getting more, and he's trying to bring peace in his home. And it says here, but Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And then it goes on, it says, because the Lord, verse 6, closed Hannah's womb, her rival, look at that, her rival, what a term, what a great thing to have in your house, your rival is there with you. This is no longer, you know, well, you know, here we are, a family, no, this is my rival. There's this rivalry, who has more kids, because at that time, if you didn't have children, if you were barren, it was considered a shame, an embarrassment. And so her rival had kids. Now, what do you think about this, the Lord closed her womb? What's your thoughts on that? Does that mean just God wasn't going to allow her to have kids? Was it for a certain time? What? What? The Lord closed her womb. Does, what does that mean when someone today can't have children? Does it mean the Lord closed their womb? What if physically there's something wrong and medically they can fix it? There's a kink in the plumbing or something like that. And they're able to surgically help that. Is that okay? Or did the Lord close the womb? What about in fetal fertilization where they can have more? Might as well jump into this, right? I mean, in vitro fertilization, that's there's a lot of issues with that. There's a lot of problems. A lot of children, you know, because they'll have multiple babies, the John and Kate plus eight, you know, kind of a situation. Uh, and a lot of times the children aren't all healthy. A lot of times they have to abort some of the children so that the others can survive. A lot of times there's a loss. And so when it says the Lord closes the womb, does it mean we should just like relinquish and say, oh, well, if I can't have kids, I can't have kids? Or should we pursue other things? Again, I think these are questions we have and they're things that we can look at. I don't know that there's a black and white answer that we're going to get. I think every situation is different. And I think God addresses each one differently. What I think is interesting is the Lord has no problem taking responsibility for these kinds of things. He has no problem saying, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. John 9 the disciples go and they see a man who's blind and they say, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, no, you, you've got it wrong. Neither this man or his parents sinned, but this man was born this way so that the work of God might be displayed in him. And so Jesus says, no, God will take responsibility for it. So a person who has uh, is born with special needs, Who's responsible? God says, I am. I'll take it. I'll, I'll take the blame. You can put the blame on me. And it's not a problem for him. He doesn't look at it as a problem. It's not like he's saying, oh, yeah, how am I going to answer this one? He says, yeah, I'll, I'll take responsibility. And, and so in that case, if a, a person can't bear a child, God said, I'll take it. You can do this and put it on me. I'm fine with that. And maybe that's the case. And maybe someone can go to the doctor and say, oh, you just need vitamins or something. You know, I mean, this is all that's necessary. And then, okay, great, not a problem. God doesn't like, oh, no, 
What about me? I said no. And you're saying yes. God's not freaking out about these things. He's giving us this ability to choose. And sometimes he closes the womb and we have to say, okay. And he says, I'll take responsibility for it. It's not a problem. Some people don't have children. It's not a shame. How can it be if God closes the womb? But you see, it can be, especially in culture. And, and you see, what was taking place, place here was a cultural shame. It wasn't that God was, oh no, you don't have children. The culture told her it was a shame. But God says, no, I'll take credit for it. And so God has no problem saying, I did it. I'll take the blame. It's not a problem for me. And then we see that between Hannah and the other wife, there is this rivalry. And how wicked is this woman who pushes the subject year after year to the point where Hannah is weeping? How wicked. Oh, no children? You know, well, I'm going to take my kids and we're going to go and we're going to take this and we can say, oh, too bad you don't have any kids. I mean, you can just imagine what she would say because I have a daughter and I remember her friends and the things that they used to say. And it's not just girls, just kids can be wicked. People can be wicked. They can just go on and on and on. And some of the things that are said by people are just mind-blowing how evil people can be. And this woman just went on and on and on to the point where Hannah was just in tears. Where she just, can you imagine, we're going to go sacrifice and it's like, here it is again. It's going to be put in my face. I have no children. I'm a disgrace. And God says, well, I closed the womb. I'll take responsibility. I, I just think that's interesting how that's in there and the way it's put in there. And, and it goes on as her husband says, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? He knows why. He's just a guy. He's playing dumb. And he says, don't I mean more than 10 sons? Well, then you see, you knew why. And he's trying to ease the pain, but it doesn't. And her shame is still there. And verse 9, it goes on and it says, once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting in his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. I've got verse 10 underlined and highlighted. It's just one of these verses in her deep ang anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Has anyone been there? Can anyone relate to that verse? Isn't it amazing how anguish pushes us to prayer? How there are times when there is so much pain, we are forced to our knees and we pray and here she wept bitterly and I can totally relate to that situation just as things are happening with our son. This past, there was a situation, I don't remember all the details, but I remember I was 
at his apartment and Corrine was at our hotel room and this thing was happening with him at this time and Corrine and I are calling each other and saying, we just need to pray right now. And we both knew how important it was. This was just an important situation. It was a fragile situation. And I can remember just being on my knees and just on my face and just be like, oh, God, just show up. I don't know what else can be done. I'm just begging you, show up now. And my wife was miles away doing the same thing because it's all we could do. In anguish, we were just weeping, just crying and wanting God to show up. And there's so many times where it takes that kind of anguish, where otherwise, if it wasn't that big, we'd just, okay, well, yeah, let's pray. Oh, God, help, blah, blah, blah. You know, we'd go on, and it's not a bad prayer. It's just anguish does something. It, it brings the the crisis to the forefront and it brings the hopelessness that we have to mind and all we can do is surrender it in weeping and in this time of anguish and this prayer i know what it's like i i've felt it i've been there it goes on too. see if you can relate to this And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. The idea of no razor was that of a dedication as a Nazarite or sometimes it would be for a period of time, but basically she's saying, I'm going to dedicate him to you. And so here she is in this anguish and she starts bargaining with God. Have you ever been there? Where you bargained with God? God, if you will do this, I promise I'll do this. Anyone been there? Is that good? No? Is it wrong? It's stupid. It's <laughs> stupid. Bargaining with God. Now, there's so many times where where this happens, you know, where we put like a a fleece to the Lord and we kind of want God to answer us, you know, according to these things or we want this. But really, it's a lack of faith in some ways. But here is desperation. And she's saying, God, if you do this, I will do that. And I know that I've done that before, thinking that my bartering can get God to move. Abraham did that. Lord, if there's so many righteous, will you not destroy the city? How about this many? Forgive me, but let me ask again. How about this many? And we do these things so many times. God, if you will just answer this, I promise I'll serve you the rest of my life. There was a movie years ago with Burt Reynolds. It was called The End. I haven't seen it in a long time, but it was this thing where he was going to kill himself and he'd be out in the middle of the ocean and he's like, okay, I'm going to die. And then he'd have all of a sudden this reason to live. 
and he starts swimming, but he didn't know if he could make it, and he would cry out to God, God, if you let me get into shore, I'll give you 100% of everything I own. And then as he started getting closer, Lord, 80% of everything I own is yours, and he'd get halfway, 50%, and finally he'd get to shore, and he goes, go, God, you've got enough already, you're fine. And he'd be there, you know, this kind of bargaining because he's in trouble. And I thought it was brilliant how we are. We bargain with God. We barter with God. God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. And we try and reason with God. And it's amazing what we do. And we're desperate. We cry out to God and we say, please, I'll do this as if our sacrifice is going to move God. Now, let me ask you here. Well, let's read and then I'll I'll ask the question. Verse 12, as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may God, the God of Israel, grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Now, well, let's keep reading. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Okay, let's pull this apart. Here she bargains with God. If you give me a son, I'll give him back to you the rest of my life, the rest of his life. She begs, she's praying, she's crying. There's the incident with Eli understanding something happens here we see that she gets pregnant and has a son did her bargaining work what hap- what's happening here so there's a change that takes place in Hannah at this point definitely we see it the countenance and change you know without faith it's impossible to please God Jesus talks about believing that you received and you will have the things that you ask I mean there's something that takes place here in Hannah that changes Hannah was bargaining with God. I don't know if the bargaining is what changed the circumstance. Maybe it was what changed in Hannah. Maybe it was this idea, you know, Hannah originally, well, Lord, I just want a son. I need to keep up with the Joneses or with the Peninnah. You know, I have to to be established. But when this came, a time of desperation, God, if I have a son, you can have him. And God said, I was waiting for that. I was waiting for a change in you. And the prayer and the desperation pushed Hannah to a place where it was a good place where God could now do a work in her and establish what God was wanting to do. Raise up this man, this Samuel. And, you know, it... I think sometimes we think, well, if I 
do these things, then God has to do these things. But I think so many times in prayer, in our anguish, what God is trying to do is get us to a place where we surrender, where we're now moldable in his hands, if that's a word. We, we can be molded in his hands, and we can be used by him, and we can now be of use into his purposes. And at the same time, God is moving Hannah to where she needs to be, and then Hannah is asking of God, and God is answering her. You see, God answers prayer. That means what we say can actually shape the things that happen. But God doesn't just give us power to say and move and shape things. What God does is work with us where he shapes us so that now we can shape what happens. You following me? So it's not just Hannah can pray and make things happen. God shapes the heart of Hannah. Now Hannah cries out, God answers, and it shapes the things that happen. And so our involvement is there because this isn't just God's going to do whatever he's going to do and we have no role in it. Hannah was crying out to God. Hannah said, I'm going to do this. And God said, okay, now I will answer that prayer. What would have happened if Hannah didn't pray? I don't know. Idea, you know? <laughs> and, and that's exactly the, the interaction that's taking place. The will of God is being established, and the will of Hannah is being accomplished. Where does the one leave off and the other take over? And it's this beautiful dance that takes place. And it's not something, because what we want to do is, well, what do we have to do to get that to always happen? Right? And there's books on that. In the Christian bookstores, you know, this is what you do in the prayer. You know, you just it's a prayer of Jabez or it's a prayer of, you know, Hannah's or, you know, name a person. And you can just find a prayer that's going to find these things. We want to find the formula. But it's not a formula. It's this dynamic relationship that's taking place where God is doing something in Hannah and then is using Hannah to do something in the world. And I think that is amazing because this woman who cries out to God is going to give birth to, again, the most important individual between Moses and King David in the history of the nation of Israel. It's not by accident that this chapter starts off, this book of history starts off with this story of this woman. And what's going on? You see, because there is the working of God in these people right here that is going to shape what is going to happen in this nation. And it's starting right here, and we're getting these insights, and this is how it looked. And I love that about the scripture. It just discloses these things. We're the ones who battle with, well, then is this good? Is this bad? What about this? What about that? And God's saying, I'm just telling you how it happened. And I want you to look at these things and I want you to see how I am working in this life and how this woman's life is being used to work in the nation. This interaction that takes place because the prophet Samuel 
is born from a woman, Hannah, who cried out bitterly to God for a son and said she would give him back. It took this woman to give birth to this son. If she wouldn't have given birth and said, no, I don't want to give him to the Lord. I'm going to keep him. The prophet wouldn't be here. The man who shaped the kings and the nation wouldn't be here. And so there's this incredible dynamic that's taking place in this story that we just have to grapple with. How God shapes a person and then uses a person to shape the people around and things around it. I love how she just changes. When she has hope, her countenance changes. She gets hungry, eats again. I love how when there is this breakthrough, when you're praying and you feel like, you know what, God, you heard me, I, I trust you. I'm going to go to In-N-Out. <laughs> I, I feel hungry again. I, I'm smiling again. There isn't this cloud or this weight on my shoulders anymore. I've now released it to you and believe in you. And the burden is gone. I love that. I love how she felt. I mean, it says in the course of time, it didn't happen right away. There was a course of time between when she prayed and when she actually conceived. And we don't know how long that time. You know, we forget sometimes our prayers. We forget the things that we ask of God. And in the course of time, God answers our prayers and we probably forgot about it. Oh, no. What is this? What do you mean, no, no? You prayed for it. In the course of time, this took place. But her countenance was lifted. She had faith in God. It's going to be okay. The priest said, the Lord answered. I have this faith, which is interesting too, because Eli played a role in her faith. As he spoke to her and said, may your servant find favor in your eye, or would say, where does he say? Eli, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked. Something happened there. And then she's like, oh, man, I find favor in your eyes. And then she was like, oh, good. He, the priest said, may the Lord answer my prayer. Sometimes just our words can speak faith into someone's life. And we can help change and bring that about. And so here Eli is being used in this situation, the change. Samuel is being born. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. The idea or the word Samuel means that God heard. That God actually listened to what I said. And so this is, you know, asked of God is like a literal translation. Verse 21, let's continue. When her husband, Elkanah, went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vows... Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, which is maybe around three years old, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Think about that. She took her vow seriously. And she didn't take this as an opportunity. Well, I'm going to go parade my son. Look at, I got one too now. I can go to the temple and we can go and have this worship. She said, no, I'm going to wait till he's the proper age. 
And then when I go there, I'm going to leave him there. Can you imagine? Can't, huh? Just unbelievable. Unbelievable. She took her vow seriously. Husband, do what seems best to you. Husbands, you should underline this verse. If you want a happy marriage, (laughs) do what you want, babe. Um, Her husband, Alkani, told her, stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Verse 24. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah, a flower, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And here is the beginning of the life of Samuel the prophet. As his mom dedicates him to the Lord. Now this is being done literally. She's leaving this boy, maybe four years old to be in the care of the priest because that was her vow to God. Something happened in this woman. To be able to do this is not easy. God had to do something in her heart so that this event could happen. Through the bitterness, through the crying, through the years of torment, this wicked other wife whose name I have a hard time pronouncing, was now an instrument in the plan of God to be used so that this woman's heartache would be able to say, I can now surrender and give this son back to God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that just to look back and see there is... Now an understanding how God can work all things for the good, for those who love him and are called for his purposes. There's taking the heartache and the bitterness and the weeping and shaping a heart of surrender, breaking a heart to a point where it recognizes and will give to God what it normally couldn't. And it's not so much, I think, that Hannah bargained with God and God said, okay, You know, I'll give you a son if you give him back to me. It was God doing something in her heart so that she would be at this place so that she could do these things. And it was an offering to God that benefited the entire nation of Israel. That she now gave this son to God. And she remembered and she brought it to Eli's attention. And I could see Eli just, huh? What? Oh, okay. Maybe he remembered. I don't know if he did or not. It doesn't say. But she remembered. And she goes, you you told me. And I told you I was the one here. God heard. And so this shapes and starts moving things forward. And again, an amazing beginning. A very personal story. 
a story that is filled with emotion, that is filled with conflict, that is filled with heartache. And this is the beginning of this book. This book of history begins in this context, which I think is neat. I just think it's beautiful. Anything stand out to you just in the whole chapter as we've been looking at it? God is working. Here's what I'm challenging because I'm very big on this whole free will thing. God has a plan, but his plan is accomplished through people who make choices. Okay? And so God is doing something amazing, but God needs a Hannah. You know? God needs an Esther. God needs someone who will say, here, here I am, choose me. Needs a Jeremiah, needs uh, an Isaiah, yeah, needs a Ruth, needs, needs someone who will step into that role. And God works on the hearts, but it's up to Hannah to surrender or to be bitter and go punch the other wife in the nose. You know, I'm serious. I mean, it takes the breaking and the molding of a person so that the things that God wants to do can be accomplished. He'll shape, yeah, he'll definitely continue, but he'll just have to take another, you know, hand. You know, he'll have to play with a different hand. It's like, okay, the, the Samuel card is out, the Hannah card is out. Okay, now I got the whatever other hand there would be. You know, and we don't know what that is. And so God does give us opportunity to be a part of those things, but people have to step into those roles. And what's amazing is how God uses people and he shapes them before those moments come. Think of Noah. Noah was a man who walked with God, pleased God, and then God drops on him, hey, I need you. I'm going to flood the world. But if Noah wasn't that man, God couldn't have used him. And so it was the shaping of that man that made him available to be used by God because God saw him and said, no one else is righteous but you. And so this man, because of how he lived, was able to be used by God to save the world. It's an amazing thing. Let, let's face it, we, we are never going to fully understand how God thinks and how God sees. I, I think sometimes we... Think of a predestined as a predetermined. And I think there's a difference. I think God has called us to be in a certain place, but it's not like he is going to make it happen without our choice freedom. That he doesn't ever violate our free will, even though he's called us to live in this place. And just because he knows these things and how they're going to happen doesn't mean that he has forced our hand. He can like Jonah, make him willing to change his mind. You know, you don't want to go to Nineveh? How about this? Now do you want to go to Nineveh? And I think that's kind of what we see with Hannah. You know, I want a child. I want a child. God, I'll give you the child. And then God says, okay, we can work here. Did God ever violate Hannah's free will? No, he says, I'm, I've closed her womb. I did it. It was me. I shut her womb. And now guess what? I'll... I'll allow her to have a child. And, and, you know, 
who knows how that all takes place. It could be just the burden lifted off of her, changed her chemistry. I mean, who, who cares? I mean, it's God working miraculously in the situation. Yeah, does God know? Yeah, but here's the problem I have sometimes is when people say, well, you know what? God has a plan. And then they vanquish their responsibilities to be a part of that plan. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, God has a plan, but you're a part of the plan. And what you do helps shape how that plan unfolds. And so sometimes we say God has a plan and we can dust our hands off and okay, I'm fine. I can do what I want now. Oh, God will take care of it. He has a plan. Well, God's plan includes you. It includes me. It included Hannah. And until Hannah surrendered herself and had this breakdown and said, God, I give back to you, God's plan wasn't being accomplished. And so Hannah was as much a part of accomplishing God's plan as God was in a very real sense. I know God is still going to work, and like we said, he can get another deck of cards or another hand and play the cards, but in this time was opportunity for Hannah to surrender, to give this child, which is no small feat. It's an amazing thing that she does, and it has to be recognized that what happened here was miraculous for this woman to say, here's the kid. Who would do that? Who could do that? She did that. That was her choice. And we have to look at Hannah and say, amazing. Hannah, you are remarkable. It'd be too easy to just say, oh, God did this. This woman did something amazing. She gave her son at three years old, who she's been crying out to God for, back to God. Yeah. If you want to step into this, this could be your moment. If not, it's like Jesus saying, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Okay, his church is going to move forward. What role are we going to play? And you see, that's the point. I think it is a crime not to give Hannah credit for what happens here. I think to undervalue her sacrifice is tragic. I think recognizing what she did is an important part to realize that because she gave and sacrificed so much, it was the opportunity for God to do so much. It was her sacrifice that ignited this whole thing to be able to do it. And so, yeah, God was working, but oh my gosh, what this woman did. It's it's what's the springboard of all this that took place, this incredible sacrifice. You know, and it was, again, God working, moving, in her heart, in her life, through all these circumstances, I close the womb. Okay, now I'm going to open the womb. And now she gives the sacrifice, and that is the beginning of a miracle, was the sacrifice. And so, in conclusion, an amazing dynamic of God at work in the lives of people in everyday human situations accomplishing the miraculous. And this is the birth point of this book. 
God is going to continue in these different people's lives with their personalities, their hang-ups, the good, the bad, the ugly, is going to continue working just like he is today through people just like us, people like Hannah, people like her husband, people like Eli, the priests whose sons are pretty messed up. As we're going to go through and see this, there's a lot of dynamic that's taking place and this is the world we live in, and this is the God we believe in, who uses people like you and me to accomplish who knows what. The miraculous, as we sacrifice for him, give ourselves over to him, there's not going to be a miraculous in our life if there's not a sacrifice in our life. Sacrifice is a part of the miraculous. And we need to recognize that as we give of ourselves and we count costs. Jesus talks about counting the cost. That's what we need to do as we move forward. Let's pray. God, this is exciting and terrifying at the same time. It's amazing to see what can happen, but it's also frightening to see what is required for amazing things to happen. And Lord, I know my mind goes and I ask so what's this going to cost me? What am I going to have to give to see you work in my life? And for me, I get the answer, everything. And I am challenged, do I want to give everything? But Lord, no one is putting their hand on the plow and looking back is fit that we are to count the cost to see what you've required of us. Lord, Hannah wasn't disappointed. It hurt. It was an incredible sacrifice. But Lord, it was one she was willing to give. Shape our hearts till we're willing to give. Lord, may we cry out until we are willing to give. And Lord, may we be faithful. May we year after year ask. May we not lose heart. May we have faith, hoping for those things that are yet unseen. Thank you again for this time, Lord. Bless everyone here, those who can't make it, Lord. pray you would be with them. I know Michael and Corinne were visiting Ashley and Cody, I pray, Lord, you'd bless them and their new babies. Uh, thank you again for your goodness, Lord. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.